What's going on, everybody? We got Makana, we got Parsa, we got Matt here for the Worst Take main episode. And what we got today is we're going to do an overrated versus underrated players. Parsa brought together his top three most overrated players in the NFL and his top three most underrated players in the NFL. And what we're going to be doing is Parsa is going to go through his list. Matt and I will see if we agree or not. And then we'll get into a Worst Take that I have prepared. But let's get right into it, Parsa. Why don't you start us off? Perfect. Thanks for starting us off, Makana. So uh, I'm going to start with overrated right now, and we're going to start with the first of my top three most overrated players in the NFL with QB Kirk Cousins. In 2019, he was voted in an anonymous survey with 85 defensive players from the NFL as the most overrated player in the league. He has appeared in four playoff games his entire career and lost three. He was signed for a fully guaranteed $84 million contract in 2015 by the Redskins, okay? And he left in 2017 and re-signed, uh, not re-signed, excuse me, signed with the Vikings for a two-year extension with $66 million over two years, uh, and that is $96 million over three years. The problem I have here is Kirk Cousins' statistics, when you look at him, he could be a top 15, top 20 quarterback. But my issue here is it just doesn't translate into wins. He isn't the type of quarterback who is shown to rise above situations when the team isn't going right. I'm not going to sit here and roast him as a starter in the league based on his statistics uh, because that, that wouldn't go anywhere. But the thing is, he has never shown that he can get past the first round of the playoffs. He has proven to be a good starter and one that can play better than other players. But it doesn't translate into wins and deep playoff runs when it matters most. Kirk Cousins may never win a Super Bowl, and his entire career he has been paid just like a quarterback who is supposed to go out there and win the Super Bowl. He's 44-42-2 in his career. He's just above 500, and he said it himself a while back. A couple years ago, Kirk Cousins mentioned the fact that good quarterbacks, the best quarterbacks in the history of our game, quarterbacks that do get the salary he's gotten, have a record better than 500. And so far, ever since he made that comment, I think three, four years ago, He's been on the same pace. Uh, and this year with the Vikings, he had a 10-5 and record based on games he played in. The Vikings went 10-6 and overall. And, you know, it was his best record ever. And he went to the first round of the playoffs and got kicked out uh, by the Niners. So, you know, uh, I just Parsa, don't... He won his first round of the playoffs. Sorry, sorry. He won his first round, but then when he got to the Niners, sorry, they, they beat his butt. But that was his first ever win in the playoffs. Uh, and then he lost that second game. Wasn't able to go deep in the playoffs. Uh, and I also think that you know, it wasn't necessarily him behind uh, the Vikings wins. Uh, so I just don't think uh, he... I think the main reason he's overrated is because of how much he's been paid and how much respect a lot of people give him in this league. Uh, and when you look at other quarterbacks who have put up the same statistics as him, they've produced way more team wins. The team success has been greater. So I do think that his stats may be one thing, but it's not translating into wins. All right, Parsa. So you brought up his record. Now, one thing that you didn't bring up was this man had to start a career in Washington. His first three seasons that he played, he went two and seven. And as a young mm -hmm. quarterback, we all know Washington does not help their players out very much. It's very rare that a player comes into Washington and they have success. It's just very rare. So what do they do? They have Kyle Shanahan. You guys are Niners fans. You guys know how good Kyle Shanahan is. And the numbers he put up in 2016 with Kyle Shanahan, he made the Pro Bowl. He threw for 4,917 yards, 25 touchdowns, 12 picks, and they went 
and seven and one. He had a 97.2 quarterback ranking. Kyle Shannon is the reason he got the biggest, most guaranteed contract in the history of football. However, when he first got that contract, he did not play up to it. He went seven and nine. He then went eight and seven. But last year, I would argue, was a better year for him than when he was playing with Kyle Shanahan. I think he deserved that money this year. He went 10 and 5, much better than a 50% win rate. That's basically 66.67%. I think that's pretty solid. He threw for 3,600 yards, a little bit less than he did with Shanahan. 26 touchdowns, increased. Six interceptions. That is one half of the interceptions he threw with Kyle Shanahan in what many people believe was his best year back in Washington. He was a pro bowler once again, and his quarterback rank rating went up 10 points from a 97.2 to a 107.4. I think that's a huge upgrade in Kirk Cousins. And while, yes, I think most people understand that Kirk Cousins is an overpaid quarterback because he got that massive contract after Kyle Shanahan. But I feel like after the first two years of people just absolutely railing Kirk Cousins saying, oh, he's not worth it. He became a little bit underrated, and I think right now, he's pretty much properly rated in my opinion. He's a quarterback that's sitting right around like 12th, 13th when I'm thinking about the best quarterbacks in the NFL, and I think that's right where he needs to be because he puts up decent numbers, but he gets a little bit overpaid. However, that overpayment came from a year where he was fantastic, but it's been so long since he got that huge contract, I think it's worth it now because you'd rather have him making that money than somebody else making a little bit less because they won't be as good as Kirk Cousins. Okay, so I definitely get where you're coming from, Makana, but I got to side with Parse on this one. I think Kirk's overrated. Um, just looking around the NFL landscape, there are a ton of replaceable quarterbacks. Um, just going down the list, Ryan Fitzpatrick, um, Philip Rivers, Gardner Minshew, Ryan Tannehill, Derek Carr, Tyrod Taylor, right? There's just a, there's a surplus of replaceable guys, and Kirk's a replaceable guy. Um, Parsa, the big thing that I took away from him was saying, okay, cool, like, I'm not going to argue the stats, and he didn't. He didn't really, his point was not based on stats. Statistically speaking, he's, he's good. However, it doesn't translate to wins, and maybe it translates to a good season where he went 10-6 and six with a Vikings team, that went 13-3 and with Case Keenum a couple years prior. but And I understand like all the problems with Washington. I'm not even counting that. I'm talking about on the Vikings. You can find a number of guys on cheap deals that can, that can do the same thing. And, and that's my issue. What, what's going to be the real difference between him and a guy like Teddy Bridgewater? Teddy Bridgewater, what is a Vikings quarterback? He took them to the playoffs. They should have won a playoff game. Now, also, there's Adrian Peterson there, so there's a talented team. But Kirk has a talented team, too. And so there's just a, a group of guys that could do the same thing that Kirk does. And that's why it, it's really detrimental to their team, in my opinion, just because you paying a guy like that is so much. I think it's very similar to Jared Goff with the Rams. And I don't I like Jared Goff because people act like he sucks. I don't think Kirk sucks. But K Kirk should not be paid like he is, and he should never be even spoken about as a top-ten quarterback. I don't, I don't really think he's there. Maybe from a stats perspective, yes, but... He does not bring his team to wins. That's and that's my main issue. And he doesn't he doesn't flip the notch. He doesn't flip the switch. He doesn't do any of that kind of stuff. One hundred percent. And before we move on, real quick, uh, I think that you know even though surveys are surveys, when you have eighty five defensive players from around the NFL say that he's the most overrated player in the league, 
that just doesn't come out of nowhere, you know? And I think McConaughey can agree, and he did agree, that the contracts he's received in his career are sometimes really, really highballing what he's performed at. And I think the gray area here and where we agree to disagree is that I and me and Matt are valuing the fact that he hasn't won as many games when his stats are really up there. His stats are truly up there. But one thing we should keep in mind is Kirk Cousins' entire career, most of it at least, has been spent in systems that help him maximize his statistical performance. So when it comes down to wins, it's a little bit of a grayer line. Uh, with that being said, let's transition into the second most overrated player that I had from the NFL currently. And that would be the great Le'Veon Bell. Uh, so we know the story about Le'Veon Bell. Came into Pittsburgh, played really well, kind of got his name out there as a top running back in the league, uh, got injured, and then James Conner comes in. I just want to do a little comparison real quick because Pittsburgh is agreeably was a decent system for a running back to thrive in, okay? Uh, they have good quarterback play, some good receivers at that time. They had Juju and AB uh, and stuff like that. Not Juju for a little bit of it, but uh, James Conner comes in. He puts up 937 yards and 12 touchdowns on 269 touches. Okay, Le'Veon Bell, ever since getting injured, had 116 carries on the Justice season and had 464 yards and four rushing touchdowns. Okay, so if you double that, it's around 900 yards, around where James Conner was, and eight touchdowns. He, uh, he had three receiving touchdowns, uh, and unfortunately, compared to before he got injured, before he got injured, he averaged 4.5 yards per carry. Now he averages four yards. Uh, since 2016, his plays of 20 yards and plus have dipped 50%. His yards per carry is down 25%. His entire system was played in Pittsburgh in a really, really good system. Uh, in terms of how he's affected the game, Big Ben has completed 5% more of his passes without Le'Veon Bell. And he, has, he had his career highs in yards per game while the Steelers only averaged one less reception and five less receiving yards in 2017 without Le'Veon Bell. In 2015, the Steelers averaged more receptions and yards a game with him out of the backfield as well. Big Ben was also sacked less on dropbacks without Bell there as well. On the Jets, his long is 19 yards. He averages 3.2 yards per rush. He's had three touchdowns in his career. Uh, so, and let's keep in mind that his career high was a season where he had 1,300 yards eight rushing touchdowns, and three receiving touchdowns. James Conner came in and got 937 yards and 12 touchdowns on 269 touches, which is pretty much the same as the amount of touches Le'Veon Bell had around 215, uh, I would say, that season. But So the problem I have here is Le'Veon Bell was great, but when you really, really go back and look at the statistics and his performance, he was at one point, a top five running back, but his entire career, he hasn't been consistent enough. And James Conner has come in and done exactly what Le'Veon Bell did, if not even better, during his time. Uh, so I just think Le'Veon Bell is on a on a downward stretch in his career right now. Uh, he's not going to be able to bounce back. He's proven it. We've given him time. The Steelers really didn't need him, and I think they did a great thing by understanding what they had in James Conner and getting rid of him. Uh, so yeah. Le'Veon Bell, boys. Okay, so I got to disagree with this one. Um, Le'Veon Bell is not overrated. I might even say he's an underrated player at this point. So you brought up how he wasn't that great last year. Well, he, what position does he play? He plays running back. Running backs are probably in the least control of their stats as any position on the field, any skill position. 
maybe wide receiver if you have a really bad quarterback. But a running back is very dependent on the offense around him. Yes, he played in Pittsburgh, and he thrived. He didn't just thrive, but he was one of the best players in the league when he was in Pittsburgh. You look at his stretch from 2014 to 2017, he missed half of he missed 10 games one year and he missed 4 games out of another season. But when he was fully healthy, he was putting up 600 yards, 1250, 600 receiving yards and 1250 rushing yards. He wasn't just doing it on the ground, he was also doing it as a receiver. You brought up that Big Ben's completion percentage went up. I think that's just kind of playing in a different system. And you brought that James Conner replicated him. My problem is James Conner replicated him for part of a season, and since then, he has not been the same guy. Their backfield has struggled. Yes, Big Ben was hurt last year. But if they would have a guy like Le'Veon Bell, that would change their offense. Last year, they would have been a playoff team. They would have been a really good team. Um, the contract stuff about Le'Veon, I don't really want to get into because that's a completely different discussion of him being overrated. But he plays a position where you can't do a whole lot about the situation around you, and the Jets were just terrible last year. I don't know if he's going to step up statistically, but as a talent, he's one of the best talent, most talented running backs from a running perspective and a receiving perspective, and he's the full package in the backfield, and that's why I don't think the stats really give him justice at all, and I think that's one of the things that we shouldn't really judge him that much on. Matt, I'm totally siding with you on this one. So one of the biggest things that we did a recent episode about bets for the NFL player of the year, offensive player of the year, Le'Veon Bell was plus 10,000. That was lower than Marlon Mack, who's probably going to be the backup running back in Indianapolis. Now, Le'Veon Bell, yes, he plays for the Jets, but let's look at his prime time, his career. And we brought up the year he was injured. And in 2015, that was when he got injured, he played six games. In those six games, he averaged more rush yards per game, more touchdowns per game than he did in his 2014 season when he was a first-team All-Pro and a Pro Bowler. And that is widely considered his best year. That was when he had 1,360 yards, 850 receiving yards. It was just an absolute 2,000 total yard season. That's Le'Veon Bell for you. Le'Veon Bell is the most patient back in football, maybe the most patient back ever in football. And when you plug in a guy like James Conner, who's way less patient and he's going to go for that hole, he will be able to replicate that production in the run game a little bit, but he won't be able to have the explosiveness that Le'Veon Bell provides with his patience behind that great Steelers offensive line. That is something that doesn't get talked about, and that's what hinders his performance in New York. Because New York has such a bad offensive line, or at least they did last year, it makes it really difficult for a really patient running back to get his production because he's going to wait for the hole to get to where he wants and a defender is just going to come in and they're going to stop him. So if Le'Veon Bell has a good offensive line, he is still a top five running back in the NFL. The problem is when he plays with a bad offensive line, he will not have the same production because he is not able to get those seams that he waits so long for rather than being somebody that just jumps into the first hole he sees because he's just so good at being patient. It just hurts him in this situation because he's not in a good system with a good offensive line that will able to that will be able to give him good production. I like what you guys said there. I think it, uh, to anyone who's listening, this is really, really good perspective. When people have a discussion about Le'Veon Bell, these are kind of the two sides that work, right? There's the one side that says, okay, well, 
from my perspective, James Conner came in, really produced. But to Matt's point, I mean, he kind of came in and finished really strong, and we haven't seen much after that to be able to prove. But we also haven't seen enough games and enough of the season to know whether or not James Conner is the guy. But to me, we've seen a lot of Le'Veon Bell, and we've seen him kind of on that downturn. But the potential, I think, is still there. The question for all of us is what's going to happen this season? How is he going to play? Uh, and how much time does he have until people start counting him out? Because the reason I think he's overrated is because I think people are still counting him in way too much. Uh, great points. Let's move on. So third on my list, shout out to the McConnell Ravens fan here. We're going to go with Marcus Peters. Uh, this was a little bit of a tough one, I would say, out of the three that I've stated. Uh, this one was the one I would say he's the least overrated out of these three, but I think he's still overrated. Uh, the man had 48 solo tackles in the league last year, 41st. He was third in interceptions. He was 34th in receptions allowed. And in targets, he was 77th. So that tells us a couple things about Marcus Peters. It tells us that he's not the tackler. He's not uh, someone who gets necessarily a lot of targets. But when he does get some targets, he does, I guess, tend to take advantage of that in terms of interceptions. Uh, in terms of receptions allowed, uh, he's 34th. So what that tells me is that he's really, really good at taking a risk and getting that interception once in a while but it kind of messes him up in terms of allowing some big plays, getting blown by, uh, some stuff like that. Uh, let's not disrespect him because when he was on the Rams, he was really good. Uh, but in six games, he had two interceptions. And in Baltimore, in 10 games, uh, and he started nine of those, he had three interceptions. Uh, I th honestly think his Kansas City days are over. Uh, he used to have a year where he put up eight interceptions in the year, 280 yards of offense produced for the team with two touchdowns on those interceptions uh, but right now uh, in terms of pro football focus he's number 38 on coverage ratings number 59 on burn rate and number 17 on passer rating allowed uh, I think his first three seasons uh, the good plays would always make up for getting beat deep and the mishaps uh, he's still a good player in the league and I would still like to see him as a starter I just feel like when people say he's a number one safety in the league or he's top five they're outdoing themselves and not understanding the progression marcus peters has had into the player he is today all right so as a raven now time for you to go off on me as a ravens fan i gotta disagree with you parsa <laughs> now i get marcus peters a lot of the time is burnt toast we saw the 49ers game dude turns around and he's like oh i turned the wrong way i should have had that pick come on marcus peters you got to make that play but Marcus Peters is a certified ball hawk in the NFL. I'm going to compare him to probably the greatest cornerback in the history of football. Now, obviously, he isn't as good as Deion Sanders. He's not. But in his first five years, Marcus Peters has more interceptions, more touchdowns, and more tackles than Deion Sanders did in his first five seasons. That's something people don't give him credit for. Now, Marcus Peters is not somebody that's going to go out and lock down your number one wide receiver the entire game. He's not Stephon Gilmore. He's not Tredavious White. He's just not that type of guy. But what he is, is somebody that will be able to play alongside a lockdown corner like a Marlon Humphrey and get picks all day against the good quarterbacks. He did it against Russell Wilson, and that's what he's so good at. He is so good at reading the quarterback, knowing where they're going to throw the football, and capitalizing on that. He makes mistakes, but because he's now a number two, 
it's a perfect position for Marcus Peters to be in because he can make those mistakes and not have to worry about someone like an Odell Beckham Jr., someone like a Julio Jones running down the field after he misses that pass. No, he's worried about the number two guy. He's worried about the James Washington on the Steelers, the Tyler Boyds on the Bengals. He's not worried about Juju, AJ Green. He's worried about the lesser known guys now, which allows him to take more risks and get more risk reward benefits. And that's what helps him in the Ravens system so much. You get Deion Sanders playmaking at a number two quarterback. And when the Ravens needed playmakers because their defense was struggling, they picked up Marcus Peters. And what did they do? Oh yeah, they won 12 games in a row. Now they didn't pick him up on the 12th game. They picked him up right before Seattle. So it was basically eight games in a row. And they were a top five defense in that span. They were not good in the first couple of weeks. But they had Marcus Peters. They had that playmaking. What do the Ravens do? They become one of the best interception teams in football. They become one of the best scoring defenses in football. And that's because Marcus Peters brings you playmaking day in and day out. Okay, so I don't, like, McConaughey, are your thoughts like that he's an underrated player? He's, like, underappreciated? No. No, 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 not at all. I mean, like, not at all. I think he's pretty fairly rated okay. in terms of cornerbacks. Yeah, but because unlike I, the, unlike McConaughey, I would be like, okay, he's overrated because I think people hype him up too much. So I guess that's the difference. So, so here's my thought, and it's kind of like a little bit, a little different perspective from your guys's. I think he's properly rated as well, but that rating being, he's not the best corner. I believe people have sort of accepted that. But they've also accepted that he's a generational playmaker. Like playmaker, he's not the best overall corner. He's not a true number one, but making plays for your defense, he's second to none in the league right now. Uh, last season, he had three defensive touchdowns. I don't know how many times he got burned. I didn't watch him like enough of last season. I know he gets burned a lot. I've seen him get burned. I've seen Kyle scheme up stuff against him and have someone just running wide open because he gets lost. But he had eight interceptions and two touchdowns as a rookie, and he got super hyped up. At that point, I think he was properly rated. He was playing like a star. He wasn't the getting burned was not as big of a deal. Then his career starts going along. He starts kind of slowing down after he gets traded away from Kansas City. He was still really good though in in Los Angeles. Then he gets traded to the Ravens. Last year, his his second half of the Ravens, when they acquired him, it changed their team. He is a very exceptional playmaker on the defensive side and people recognize that I think and I think they also recognize that he does make mistakes and he does get burned but even with that said I think he's a really good player I think he's a great player to have because okay you get burned for a touchdown then you get a pick six well that's like giving up no touchdown that's flawless you know like obviously he allows a little bit more than one to one ratio on his touchdowns and touchdowns allowed but he is I think he's very properly rated everyone knows that he's a he's a star playmaker but not the best overall player. Yeah, thanks for bringing that perspective to the table, Matt. I think all of us do agree that Marcus Peter is a game-changing player. I think he was a piece that definitely helped solidify the Ravens last year as a top defense in the league. He kind of was able to be that cherry on top of the ice cream. Uh, ice, you know, cherry on top of the sundae in a sense. Uh, really bringing that defense together. And to that point, you know, it is important to acknowledge that Marcus Peters may not have to be as productive as he was on the Rams and the Kansas City Chiefs when he played for them 
because he's playing with an extremely, extremely talented defense. Uh, arguably the most talented defense in the league. So those were my top three uh, most overrated players from the NFL. And I would like to hear now, McConnell and Matt, if y'all have anything else to say, maybe a player that I missed or something like that. Yeah, I've got one guy that you kind of missed. Now, you brought up a former teammate of his, a Pittsburgh Steeler, Juju Smith-Schuster. Now, last year, Juju Smith-Schuster was coming into the year coming off of a Pro Bowl. He was expected to be the number one. But what, what happened? He played 12 games, had 42 receptions for 552 yards and three touchdowns. In 2018, he put up 111 receptions. 1,426 yards and seven touchdowns. But let's look at that year. He was a number two. Ben Roethlisberger threw for 5,000 yards and 34 touchdowns. He led the league in passing. Antonio Brown, who was the number one, had basically 1,300, 1,297, 15 touchdowns. And you have to double A-B. Juju Smith-Schuster, when he had his best season, was because he was in single coverage because everybody had to double Antonio Brown. And when he would became the number one, sure, he didn't have great quarterbacks, but the great ones are able to perform with the bad quarterbacks. And Juju did not perform with the bad quarterbacks he played with. He had an atrocious season. Now, maybe he picks it up. Maybe next year he becomes better. But I just, I see him as overrated as of now. Real interesting, Makana. Thanks for sharing that. I definitely think Juju could be a player uh, or a topic of discussion within those top three. But moving on, let's get to the most underrated players in the NFL. And with my number one out of three, I will go with Terry McLaurin. Uh, let's start with a little bit of background about Terry McLaurin. The senior year of college, he had 953 yards and eight touchdowns. He rushed for 744 yards and had six touchdowns with two kickoff return touchdowns. His junior year at Indiana, he had 820 yards and 16 touchdowns uh, receiving. In high school, he won four straight state championships in his career not only does terry mclaurin know how to win but his stats prove that he knows how to play his entire career he has been surrounded with the most inconsistent horrible quarterback play that only goes to say he's played one season in the nfl but he had 58 receptions on 93 targets uh, he had 119 sorry he had 919 yards which is almost as much as a senior year in college and averaged 15.8 yards a catch with seven touchdowns. His long of the season in passing was a 75-yard touchdown. He had zero fumbles lost, and he played 14 games. He's the only rookie in PFF's top 25 wide receiver ranking, and in pro football focus, they gave him an 85.7 overall grade, which is the best of any rookie wide receiver and the fifth best in the entire NFL. He's number 36 in receptions, number 27 in yards, number 23 in air yards, number 43 in yards after catch, number 13 for touchdowns, and number 14 for yards per reception. He's 208 pounds, he's really fast, he's quick, he's athletic, he's powerful, and he's almost 25 years of age. Uh, he just missed the cut for the top 25 players under 25 for CBS News, joining a crowd that had Debo, Juju, Mark Andrews, and a lot of other notable players as well. I think that Terry McLaurin putting up statistics as good as his senior year in college in his first year of the NFL with absolutely crappy quarterback play and a system that doesn't necessarily maximize his strengths is incredible. I think he is a top 20 receiver in this league, 
top 30, whatever you want to call it. I think he's a number one receiver on a lot of football teams, and he's got a great career ahead of him, and I don't think people talk about him enough. I don't think people give him enough credit. I don't think he's in enough conversations. Parsa, I'm a big fan of Scary Terry McLaurin. I like Ohio State. He had a lot of production at Ohio State. And in the NFL, like you said, 58 receptions, 919 yards, 7 touchdowns. It's a really good rookie season. I think people see him as a top three rookie wide receiver from last year. I just think when people are talking about the best rookie receivers from last year, now people underrate Debo, so they typically don't bring up Debo, but you two would bring up Debo. But people talk about DK Metcalf, they talk about AJ Brown, they talk about Terry McLaurin. And I think top three rookie receiver, I think that's perfect. I think that's properly rated. I think he's a properly rated player in the NFL because he had three games last season with 100 yards receiving. He did it twice against Philadelphia. In his two games against Philadelphia, he had 255 yards and two touchdowns. Really good. But come on, Philadelphia had a piss-poor secondary. 22nd in pass yards allowed last season. And then the other team, oh, who did he do against? The Dolphins. 27th in pass yards allowed. He went for 100 yards and two touchdowns. Like, it's not like he was going up against the elite corners of the NFL and torching them. No, he went up against the awful corners, the awful secondaries. And yeah, he produced, but he was the only guy on that team. Like, who else was Dwayne Haskins? Who else was Alex Smith? Who else was Case Keenum supposed to throw to? Like, it was Terry McLaurin, an injured running back core, an injured tight end core, like, I think he's pretty properly rated. I mean, he produced, but I don't see him as, like, a top 20 wide receiver in the NFL just yet. Like, he's a he's going to be a pretty good sophomore. He's got good expectations, but I think he's pretty properly rated. I don't see him being underrated because I see him, as most people think he's a top three rookie wide receiver last year and going into this year. People are really high on him, I think. Yeah, I got to completely agree with you on that one, Makana. I don't think he's underrated in really any capacity um not to say i don't think he's good i think he's a really good player maybe he's not known as much but that would only be because he played on a really bad washington redskins team and i mean he put up good numbers like you said also mcconnell he had just some really big games that stood out but 919 yards and seven touchdowns as a rookie is really good but it's nothing to make me believe that he's going to become some all pro level player that people just aren't recognizing yet. I think he's a good receiver, probably a solid number one. Um, but I don't think he's, he didn't have an Odell Beckham type rookie year. He didn't have some star studded rookie season where, I mean, his team lost. He didn't reach a thousand yards. Yeah, he had a good one, but he didn't reach a thousand yards, didn't reach 10 touchdowns, and his team was pretty bad. So I think that it's, he's been being fairly recognized for like what he's done. I think he's known as an up-and-coming receiver, but I don't think, I mean, he could still have a sophomore slump. He's not He's not some, like, foolproof, perfect wideout number one. So I don't think it's really, like, there yet for him. I think we make a lot of great points. I think the difference here is with between me and McConaughey and Matt is that Matt and McConaughey don't necessarily see Terry McLaurin as someone who could be the number one receiver. I see him as a clear number one. Uh, I think there's no chance that he has a sophomore slump because of the circumstances that he had to endure in his first season and the way he produced. Uh, But that being said, let's go to number two on my list with the big boy out of Pittsburgh, Big Ben. People treat this guy like he's done and he's still in the prime of his career. 
and they say he's not a good QB, he's this and he's that. Okay, well, I just saw your face, McConaughey. He's probably at the tail end of his prime. That's a little bit of a stretch. But he, this, we're talking about a guy who didn't get, has only missed one game in the prior three seasons leading up to his injury. And he was a QB three. He was the third best QB on in road games in 2019 be, uh, between uh, behind Rodgers and Watson. And it's really, really big. Uh, the last season, full season he's had, he had the most yards and the most touchdowns he's ever thrown for. 50, almost 5,200 yards with 34 touchdowns and 16 picks. And he did a 96.5 QB rating, which ties for seventh best QB rating he's had in his career. So it's really high. He's still performing and he might have had an injury, but this guy gets bashed on way too much. And why? Because he's not exciting. Because he's a little bit chubby and he's a little bit big and he's a little bit slow, but he can still sling the football better than a lot of other QBs in the league. You know, he's nice with it. And let's just take out Antonio Brown out of the situation. Great. His numbers went up a little bit when Antonio Brown came to town. But we're talking about Antonio Brown here. But before Antonio Brown, Ben Roethlisberger was a top three QB in the NFL. And some people might say he's a volume passer, he's this and that. He's not a volume passer because his efficiency shows that he's not a volume passer. His efficiency proves that the more he throws the ball, the more productive he is. So he's not necessarily a volume passer in the sense that he has to throw more to be better. He's just efficient overall. His efficiency stats are great. Uh, but it's really not surprising considering some big chubby dude that can throw the football well, gets a lot of hate, and has a lot of haters for a reason. I think Big Ben can come out this season and be a top 10 quarterback, easy money. He's got the weapons. I think he's heavily disrespected today, and people don't even put him in a discussion of top 10. Some people don't even put him in a discussion of top 20. So people need to get a little bit more sense in themselves, realize that this guy has been a consistent top 5 QB for the past 10 years, and he is really, really, really good. Okay, so I don't think Big Ben's underrated at all. He's 38, and he's coming off of an elbow injury. Also, if you haven't seen any pictures of Big Ben lately, go look them up, and your opinion on this whole discussion will be changed. Because he's not looking like a uh, nice 38-year-old Brady. Not like that. He looks like, an, he looks like he's about 50 years old right now. Um, obviously, the beard's not doing him any help. But yeah, he put up some, some good numbers in 2018. He also had... Antonio Brown on his team that always helps he has been hit probably more than almost every quarterback in the history of the NFL and to think that he's just going to come back off of an elbow injury and just be oh prime big Ben I mean he he hasn't been prime big Ben in a while and he has just been beat up I don't I think he's not I don't know how you'd say he's underrated he's rated how he should be a guy that used to be a superstar and now is old injured and he's at the end of it so i don't i don't really see him doing much this year i think he has a good team he might win but he's not going to be like making you think oh this is the big ben of the past no it's his best days are definitely behind him sad to say though doesn't mean he's not underrated though yeah we're not we may not see big ben of the past we're gonna see big ben of the future come on we're not talking about old london here that's not the Big Ben. Come on. Big Ben in the last 10 years, since 2009, every single season has had a passer rating over 90. And that's obviously not including last year um, when he only played in two games and he got injured. But he added 
Eric Ebron, he's got chemistry with Juju. While I think Juju is overrated, I do think Juju fits with him well. They do have the chemistry. He's got James Washington, an okay number two receiver, but they got a young guy in Chase Claypool out of Notre Dame. Just really talented team. Good offensive line. Really good offensive line. And Big Ben's going to come in there. And I've said before on the podcast, I think he's a real dark horse for MVP. And I think he's clearly the favorite to win the comeback player of the year. And I think people are looking at Big Ben like he's going to kind of just coast the Steelers into a couple of wins because they were still good last year just because of their defense. Their offense was terrible. But Big Ben, people are looking at, oh yeah, he can lead them to a couple extra wins. Maybe they get to 10 wins with their defense and he'll be able to kind of guide them into the playoffs or something like that. I disagree. Big Ben will lead that team into the playoffs and their defense will help him. He won't be helping out the defense. He's going to be the main factor they make the playoffs because he will be able to throw the deep ball to Juju Smith-Schuster because that's what Juju's good at catching. Juju is taking the top off the defense multiple times. He has two 97-yard touchdowns in his career. Two. His first and second year, both with Big Ben, he is able to produce with a guy like Big Ben. And Parsons making a lot of uh, guns up facial expressions. You know how it is because he believes in Big Ben. I believe in Big Ben. And Matt is just body shaming this man for just living his best life. Matt, you want to you wanna argue with me that just because somebody's a little bit chubby, they can't play football? Are you saying that? Look at Shaquille O'Neal! Look at Shaq! Okay, okay. Not body shaming Big Ben, but his... Yeah, no, for the record, Matt didn't body shame. He just made a fair point. Big Ben is a bigger <laughs> dude. Uh, objectively, Big Ben has always been a bigger dude, but, you know, his stats are his stats, and we all brought up some good points. Uh, let's now move on to the last player. Uh, surprisingly enough, I think this player is the most over or underrated player that I'm going to mention today. And here's my one reason why, before I get into the grid and the grind, is people don't talk about him. People do not respect him. When you look at the Vikings and talk about their defense, you hear Everson, Everson, Griffin, 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 before you even hear Daniil Hunter. He is a beast. He is a beast. He is the most... One of the most underrated defensive players in the league. And here's what I'm going to say about him. He had 14.5 sacks last season. He had 14.5 sacks the season before that. He had 3.5 sacks in a game. He's the youngest player in NFL history to reach 50 career sacks. Clearly, Everson Griffin gets way, way too much attention. Uh, in Let's just go back a little bit before uh, the Super Bowl this year. And in December of 2019... Everson Griffin had 10.5 sacks at that point in the season. He finished with 14.5 in the regular season. This man is a beast. His production is unconditional. In 2015, when he came into the league, he had six sacks. In 2016, 77. In 2018, 14 and a half. In 2019, 14 and a half. His progression has been exponential, and he is at the top of our league in sackers. He's fourth in tackles on the team. Jared Allen and Keith Miller are the only other Vikings ever to record 50 sacks in their first five seasons with the team. Now, that's a pretty, pretty darn good group of guys to be with. Not even a group. It's three people total. It's a, it's a whatever you call it. Uh, most sacks on the Viking this season, right? More than anybody else. The second on the team, 
Everson Griffin. Great. Everson Griffin's great. Great ball player, really aggressive force of nature, but he had eight sacks. That's six and a half sacks difference between two people on the same front seven. I mean, give me a break. This man doesn't even get talked about. This man doesn't even get talked about. In 2018, when he had 14 and a half sacks, the second on the team was Everson Griffin with 5.5 sacks. And the team had a total of 50 sacks. This man has been consistently a fourth or a fifth of the team's entire sack total for the season. With the second most sacks coming from a monster player in Everson Griffin, probably a future Hall of Famer, and he had nine sacks less than less than this man in 2018. Uh, in 2018, he was also fourth in the NFL with sacks behind Cameron Jordan, Chandler Jones, and Shaquille Barnett. Uh, uh, sorry, that was fourth in 2019. In 2018, he was fifth. This man is a force of nature, uh, and maybe it's just my perspective, but I don't hear the name Daniil Hunter enough. Really not enough. Yeah, I agree. Daniil Hunter's, I mean, out of like all the star pass rushers in the league, uh, he is probably the most underrated. I mean, I think a lot of it comes down to he was a third-round pick only a few seasons ago. Almost every single elite pass rusher is top five, if not a first or second rounder. Rare, they're almost all first-round picks. Um, Neil Hunter is a third-rounder, super athletic. Um, I, th- I believe he ran a four-five-seven. Yeah, four-five-seven. He's six foot five, two fifty, thirty-four long-inch arms, ten-inch hands. He just didn't produce in college, and that's why he went late. But he's he's developed into a superstar. He doesn't have weak like physical limitations. Uh, you see that with a lot of like later round picks. He's not one of those guys. He was one of those project picks that immediately turned it around, and he produced from the jump. Uh, I don't know how he isn't talked about as much. I like that you bring up how Everson Griffin gets talked about like a lot, and just when you talk about the Vikings players. Yeah, man. Everson Griffin. I mean, I mean, they lost him last this off season, and they're. I mean, I, out of the Vikings fans that I know, they're not too concerned about losing Griffin because they know that Daniel Hunter's. A, a bona fide superstar, um, but people don't talk about him like that. They act like losing Everson Griffin is going to affect their defense. Maybe a little, probably not that much, because the guy that was getting done was Daniel Hunter. So, good point. Yeah, if we're talking about guys that are going to disrupt the Vikings defense, it's not Everson Griffin leaving. It's the entire secondary. Like, if we're being honest, but Daniel Hunter is probably the most underrated player in the NFL. Now, let's look at his last two seasons. Basically identical Pro Bowl seasons. 14 and a half sacks both years. 70 to 72 combined tackles in the two years. 51 to 52 solo tackles in the two years. 19 to 22 quarterback hits. Oh, but what did he do last season? Oh, this year he actually had three forced fumbles instead of the zero two years ago. Like he improved. He put up a com- really consistent numbers. And that is almost impossible to do in the NFL to put up almost identical numbers in back-to-back years. And the Vikings defense is really good because of that front seven that they have. And Daniil Hunter is the biggest reason as biggest reason as to why that is. And his speed off the edge is almost unmatched in the NFL. He's an athletic force of nature. And Parson, I think you hit it spot on talking about him being the most one of the most underrated players in the NFL. Yeah, exactly. I think we all pretty much agree on that in terms of Daniel Daniel Hunter 
For those of you who have never heard his name, I honestly wouldn't be surprised, but I would definitely go look him up, look at his stats if you're interested. If you're listening right now, go take a look at his numbers. Uh, even the numbers that we didn't touch on, this guy from top to bottom, from bottom to top, is one of the most impressive pass rushers in the league. If he continues this, he will definitely go down in NFL history as one of the best pass rushers of all time. Uh, it's incredible the improvement in production we've seen. Like Matt said, this was this was a kid people counted out. When you draft someone who's producing this well now in the third round, you definitely counted them out because if you thought he was going to do what he's doing now, you would have taken him first round top 10. I mean, that this is this is some immense production here. I mean, you would definitely, he'd be a top three lock if you knew the, the production you are going to get out of him. Easy, exactly. And now I believe it is time to take a transition into the WT baby, worst take. All right, everybody, it's my worst take. And what I'm going to be saying here is probably going to trigger a couple of people, probably going to trigger both of you guys. But what I'm going to say for my worst take, and if you don't know, a worst take is an unpopular opinion that you believe. It's not just some stupid opinion. Just to get that out there for new people that are listening, I just want to bring that up. But my worst take is that people need to stop focusing on athletes' moments. They are overrated. People overrate players because they have these big moments. And I'm not gonna I'm not gonna play like I don't ever do this. I am a victim myself. We all do this. Now I've got a couple of examples here. Odell Beckham Jr. Odell Beckham Jr. came onto the scene his rookie year and had maybe the greatest catch in the history of football. And what do people think of when they think of Odell? They think of great hands. Yeah. Odell has great hands. Well, what is his best attribute? Short routes over the middle. After the catch, he is able to take anything to the house. And that's what makes him special. But people don't talk about that because they focus on the one catch that he made. And he's made other ones. He made the diving one against the Redskins. He's made a couple of jumping, leaping ones over the middle. But overall, people think Odell, they think of the catch. And the next guy that I'm going to bring up is Michael Thomas. Michael Thomas is the most consistent wide receiver in football. He has to be. He set the record for most receptions in a year. And why do people not talk, why do people not like Michael Thomas? Sure, he can whine a little bit, but no. He's not flashy. He runs slants, he runs outs, he runs bubble screens. He's not amazing after the catch. He's not amazing. And people don't like to talk about him because he's not funny. He's not a Julio Jones. He's not going to moss you like Julio and DeAndre Hopkins. He's not going to do that because he's Michael Thomas. He's going to run really crisp routes. He's going to catch the football. And that's why he's a top wide receiver. Getting into basketball, I'm going to bring up Dame Time. A clutch NBA player. He's a great playoff performer. He hit two of the greatest series clinching shots in the history of basketball. Guys, Damian Lillard is a 40% career playoff shooter. Not three-point shooter, playoff shooter. 40%. That is an atrocious number. But people associate Damian Lillard with great playoff performances because he's hit two of the greatest shots ever. And people are overrating those shots. They're looking at it. Yes, credit to Damian Lillard. Credit to Odell Beckham Jr. They did those plays. They did that. That is incredible. That is not an asset that you can just get rid of being able to hit those game winners. But let's look at let's look at the next guy I have, Eli Manning. 
lock for the Hall of Fame, a lot of people would say. Why is that? He won He won two Super Bowls. He beat Brady. Eli Manning won 50% of his games in the NFL, had a 60% completion for his entire career, a one-and-a-half touchdown-to-interception ratio. Like, how is this guy, like, a lock for the Hall of Fame, as a lot of people would say? Like, he was maybe an average quarterback for his entire career, and he played a long career, but people look back and they're like, oh, Eli Manning, those Super Bowls, crazy. Oh, come on, that was the defense and a couple of insane catches. Like, it's not all Eli Manning. Now, Eli Manning, is a he's a good quarterback for his whole career. He's pretty average. I would take an Eli Manning career if I could have one. Obviously, he won the Super Bowls. It's a benefit to win those Super Bowls. But the guys that I'm going to bring up, not all of them are, are really like legendary players. The next guy I'm going to look up, Joe Flacco. Super Bowl run, 11 touchdowns, zero picks. Maybe the greatest statistical season, like postseason we've ever seen. And for three years, people are arguing if this man is elite? Heck no. In 2012, he was under 60% in completions. In 2013, he was even worse. He was even worse. Like, and they argued for three years. And he was never a 4,000-yard passer in that span. But people argued, oh, he, he had that great playoff run. They overrated him because of that. No, come on. Stop overrating because he had that great moment. Now, when we're talking about other players that have great moments, they can still be great. LeBron James came back 3-1 in the NBA Finals to beat the 73-9 Golden State Warriors. Yes, he had that moment. But then you could be like, oh, don't overrate that moment. What else did he do? LeBron James dominated the Eastern Conference his entire career. Like, LeBron James is not great because of that one moment. He's great because he's been great pretty much forever. Now, another NFL guy. Going to bring up my boy, Crab Legs, Jameis Winston. People focus on the interceptions. Those are his moments. He makes the stupidest throws. The dude is blind. And since 2006, what quarterbacks have had the most turnover-worthy plays? There's a tie. Top three. Jameis Winston, Carson Palmer, and Andrew Luck. Now, the other two guys, those guys sound like, wow, they had pretty good careers in the NFL. It was all of their first season in a Bruce Arians offense. They all had 40 passes that were turnover worthy. But we're talking about since 2006. Let's bring up another statistic since 2006. Jameis Winston has the highest percentage of positively graded plays in the NFL since 2006, according to Pro Football Focus. Like, people focus on the moments of his interceptions. But consistently, he's making good plays. But people don't see that because they see the interceptions. They see those negatives. Now, get, don't get me wrong. I am not saying Jameis Winston is the best quarterback since 2006. I'm saying, like, Jameis Winston is, like, a starting quality quarterback. I'm not going to argue that he's this greatest player ever. But he did. He does a lot of good things. And people don't give him credit for that because they look at the negative moments. And that's pretty much all I have for my immediate example. But basically, moments aren't always good, but whether they're positive or negative, people inflate their opinions too much about those players, and we need to realize it, including myself, so we can stop inflating our opinions based on individual moments. Could not have said it any better, Makana. The sports world is obsessed with taking the moments that can make the most money, get the most media attention, get the most disagreements, controversy, Everything, everything that will make it seem bigger than reality is what the leagues will try to portray. 
let's just go back to even right before we recorded this podcast. I'm having a discussion with Matt about Nick Young and J.R. Smith. And I go, J.R. Smith is easily a better player in our game than Nick Young. And Matt goes, you're insane. And I go, no, I'm not. You're insane. And he goes, check it out. Nick Young had a season where he averaged 17 points a game. There have been all-stars that have averaged 17 points a game in our league before. And I didn't even realize that because all I defined Nick Young by was that three that he took on the Lakers, turned around and put his nice little three up, turned back around and, oh, it rolled right out and came back out of the basket and he never made that three. So Nick Young sucks. Nick Young is a scrub. Nick Young is this. Nick Young is that. And guess what? I thought J.R. Smith was a sweet piece of talent because of all the dunks that he had, all the oops, all the threes, all the late game buzz and electricity, all of that vibe with the Hennessy. You know, it's just... People need to learn to see through the BS. There's a lot of experiences and moments that define how we think about sports. And instead of defining OBJ by the catch, let's be a little bit more reasonable. This guy might not even be a top five receiver of all time when he leaves the game. But when he started, we knew that he was going to be a top, easily top 50 receiver, top 100 receiver of all time. Really, really good talent, right? But we think about the catch. Dwight Clark. How, how do I know Dwight Clark? I'm a diehard Niners fan. How do I know? The catch in the end zone that won the Super Bowl. That is how I know Dwight Clark, right? Do I know Montana? Why do I know Montana and Steve Young? Because of the way they threw the balls, the plays they made, not the fact that they had 15, 10 straight seasons with over 4,000 passing yards, all these touchdowns, all these interceptions. So that's all I want to say in conclusion. I agree with Makana. I think there's a certain level though. Like Makana said, it's not like everybody just looks at the experience in the moment before the stat. It's just that people prioritize one experience as if it's fifteen a 15-year career, which is very, very uh, limited. Okay, so first of all, I'm going to start with two of the guys you guys talked about, Jameis Winston being the first. You talk about him getting overrated for his moments. Well, the thing about Jameis Winston is that his moments are game-losing pick sixes. Those are his moments. He's not a winner. The other guys that you named that had the big turnovers, yes, I don't think Winston is, is as bad as the media portrays him, but he's not a starting-level quarterback. I he agree. threw 30 interceptions, and you're saying that these moments, the difference between him and Andrew Luck in their one year with Bruce Arians, I believe Luck might have had him a couple after, but that first year for each of them, Luck made the playoffs with a horrible, horrible Colts roster, one of the most atrocious rosters. Yeah, he had a ton of turnovers because his roster was abysmal. What Bruce Arians did with Winston when he's the head coach, he goes, oh, one year with Winston, sees who he's at, and he decides, okay, let's kick Winston to the curb and let's get Brady because this isn't working out. He didn't do the same thing with Palmer. He went to a Super Bowl with Palmer. And Andrew Luck was one of the one of the best quarterbacks I mean, in the 21st century. I, I don't know what else to say. But those two guys are great players. Um, so that's my thought on that on him. As far as J.R. Smith, my whole point about J.R. Smith was that he's a scrub just like Nick Young's a scrub, but he just gets hyped up for the being in New York, being on LeBron's team, just overhyped by that, not by necessarily his moments. I, I don't really the moments I see of him are like like you said, like him like doing the Hennessy stuff. Like I don't really see basketball moments with him that made him good. So that was a little bit different on on our opinions. Um But then one guy but I Matt, want to bring but up. Matt, Matt, one thing, yeah. one thing, Matt. When you, when you look at J.R. Smith, I mean, you can agree that you see those videos online. They're like, look at this dunk, and you see the dunk, and you go, 
how is J.R. Smith not a top 10 dunker of all time if he can throw this down? You know what I'm saying? Then you well, assume all yeah, these but things. Also, and, you know, I mean, I just Nick like Young you is Nick that Young. About that. Yeah, but I feel like you see that about, like, a ton of players. Like, a, okay. lots of NBA players, you know? Fair. So I was just having a different point with that one. Um, Fair. One guy, though, Parsa, that I want to bring up, when you talk about moments. So what's your thought, your honest thoughts on Derek Fisher, Parsa? Give me two sentences on Derek Fisher. I think Derek Fisher was the most perfect point guard for the Lakers during that stretch in terms of I don't think that they would have gotten to where they got without Derek Fisher, but at the same time, he won a bunch of rings and wasn't necessarily a key player as much as Andrew Bynum might have been or Pau Gasol or Kobe as obviously during those seasons. So I think that uh, many would underrate him and many would overrate him, but I think the perfect balance is really being honest and saying Derek Fisher was a key piece in terms of like, he was always there and locked in and consistent in terms of what he was supposed to do to provide the team with success. Yeah. I think a lot of Laker fans, pretty much all of them, absolutely love Derek Fisher. Why? Because he had the big moments. So you're talking about these big moments not mattering. Derek Fisher is a way more relevant player than some star that played on some losing team. Shit. He's more relevant than Devin Booker. Devin Booker is one of the greatest, like the best overall three-point shooters but he doesn't do anything worthwhile. Derek Fisher is much more relevant than him, and his career should be more remembered than him. Why? Because he had big moments. Who cares Who cares if Devin Booker put up empty stats? That's, that's my thing. Moving on, David Freeze. Now, this is a baseball player. David Freeze had the most amazing 2011 postseason. He had godly numbers. He put up five home runs between the three series, and in the NLCS, he put up a five- 45 average. I don't think you guys have ever heard the stat average of a 545 average. You don't hear that every day. Then in the World Series, he put up a 348 average. Also, he had a ton of clutch hits. He has this triple, I believe it's in the ninth inning. One of the it might have been an extras, but he had a triple to tie the game, and then he had a home run to win the game later in that NLCS. He is just a fantastic player. That playoffs, he went off. You guys don't even know who David Freeze is, and I know that because you don't watch baseball, and people that don't watch baseball don't really know about David Freeze. David Freeze in his career is a 277 average hitter. Pretty average. He has a thousand career hits. He's played for a long time. He's a one-time all-star. He's recognized and he's remembered as a one-time all-star, and casual people that don't really watch baseball that much don't know who he is. But he's a World Series MVP and a World Series champion. So... He doesn't get overrated by the media. People know what he did. He came in and he had a legendary moment, just like Fisher. So before you guys, before you guys say anything, this is the question I want you to answer before you get on to explaining your side. Why do we even watch sports in the first place? There's one clear reason, and it's to watch these moments. Everything you remember about sports is the moments. If you don't deliver in the moments, then who cares? Who cares how good you are? Because you didn't win and you didn't deliver in the moments. And that's my problem. Matt, I agree with you completely on the idea that people watch sports only for the moments. I mean, come on. As a Ravens fan, I will never forget the Flacco fling, the mile-high miracle. Like, it'll, it'll never leave my mind. It'll never leave my mind. And you have a point in that. Like, props to all the guys that we've mentioned that have hit those shots. Derek Fisher, 0.3 seconds left. I don't, I don't even know if anybody in history would have made that shot. Like, that is a one-in-a-billion shot against the Spurs Derek Fisher hit. Like, I mean, Tim Duncan, props to him for hitting the uh, running cross the key floater, whatever thing that he hit right before that. But let's talk about, um, is his name David Freeze? Is that 
I'll call him Mr. Freeze. You know what? Doesn't matter. Mr. Freeze. Let's talk his, about Mr. His nickname, Freeze. His nickname is Mr. Postseason. Okay. I'm calling him Frozone. So Frozone, I don't watch baseball. I don't. I don't watch baseball at all. I, I can maybe name 10 players in the history of baseball. And it, when you bring up Mr. Freeze, David Freeze, whatever his name is, sounds like he's a perfect candidate to model what we should be doing. Like, when you see a guy have really good moments, but not, you know that they're kind of an average guy, you got to look at him like that and be like, yes, he had that great moment. Joe Flacco, yeah, he had that great run. Eli Manning had those Super Bowls, the NFC Championship games. That's what he's known for, Eli Manning. That's when he was great. People don't talk about it, though. Beat Favre, all that stuff. But when you're talking about those type of guys, yeah, they did those shots. That's what makes it fun. But when we're talking about overall greatness, you don't have to talk about only the fun parts. It, when you're talking about, like, greatest players in NBA history, there's a lot of flashy guys. When you're talking about the greatest dunkers in NBA history, guys like Dominique Wilkins. Yeah, he was flashy. He was crazy flashy. But he wasn't as good as Michael Jordan. Like, when we're talking about the flashiness, the fun parts, yes, that is what people enjoy talking about. Nobody wants to talk about the Patriots, Rams, Super Bowl. Nobody does. It was boring for almost everybody, except for me. I, I really enjoyed it. But when people look at that Super Bowl, they're like, oh, that Super Bowl sucked. That was one of the best Super Bowls we've had in recent memory. And it didn't have a lot of great plays other than the McCourty um, touchdown-saving swat. But that game was a really good football game. Brady wins a Super Bowl. Like, those are the type of things that still matter. It matters when you do something that's not fun. And people can't just overlook the boringness of a career and just go to the only fun parts. Life isn't all about being fun. It's about everything. Okay, okay. I get what you're saying. But I'm talking about these moments on the biggest stage are where you, where people and players need to be judged the heaviest. Because that's the part that matters the most. When there's the most pressure on, it's about the people who deliver. You're saying that David Freeze is a perfect candidate for this, right? Well, what about this argument? Who doesn't? Who here doesn't think that Jerry Rice is the best receiver ever? Nobody, right? Because it's widely considered that he's not. The yes. only guy that you could really, the only guy that you could really can like say like, oh, he's better, or, and I ever hear that he's better, which is very rarely, and that's my point, is Randy Moss. Randy Moss has way more exciting moments, way more crazy played. He, he played on the undefeated Patriots, all that stuff, right? Well, Jerry Rice is recognized as the best receiver ever and as the best playoff receiver because he put up big numbers, and people just know that. People don't have these – there's no significant – there's no crazy moment of Jerry Rice. But the players that aren't that great, like Derek Fisher, like Dallas Clark, those type of players – they make their moment, and that's what they're known for. Only their moment. They don't. People don't recognize their whole career and go, Derek Fish, Fisher, one of the greatest clutch shooters of all time. No, people do that with who? Michael Jordan, like you brought him up. People recognize, oh, look how clutch Mike is. Mike wins in big spots. Mike has all the moments. What does he become? The greatest player ever. Why? Because he delivered. I mean, I don't know if you guys fin has finished the last dance, but he won had a three-peat. Retired for a year, came back, lost, and then had another three-peat. He was the most dominant player ever, and he gets recognized by that, by that dominance. That's the reason why. If if at the biggest moment you don't fold like MJ, he didn't fold, then you get recognized as the GOAT. Why? Because you're the GOAT, because you don't fold in the big moments. If you're some star that always folds in the big moments, 
You don't deserve to get recognized, even by like a Fisher. Because Fisher at least gets recognized for his moment. He's not getting recognized for being some all-time NBA player. No, he's getting recognized for having that, those moments on those Laker teams. And that's what brings him up. That's, that's why I don't know how you can overrate moments. Because I think they're totally rated accordingly right now. And I, I just don't see how they're not. All right, I just want to give one thing. You talked about Michael Jordan. In addition to the shot, the game six shot, he's got, I mean, come on, Michael Jordan, he's got, he's got plenty of great shots. What did he do in his career that was so great? He scored the basketball, 27 points per game in his rookie year. He averaged 37 points per game in another year. The highest scoring career player average in NBA history. It's not because he was great in six NBA finals. It was because he was great all the time. And when we're talking about Jerry Rice, there's no more consistent receiver in the history of football. For practically 20 years, the dude put up stats, played in pretty much every single game. And talking about like a guy like Dwight Clark, Dwight Clark doesn't get recognized as that because Dwight Clark wasn't great off the field. But some people do get recognized where they're put on that pedestal because they weren't being great. Parson, do you want to add on to that? Exactly. I love that point, McConaughey. It's exactly where I was going to go. So like D Fish, right? Obviously, he's not going to get recognized as a top point guard ever because of that moment, because he doesn't have any stats or anything that backs up to that. But a lot of players that put up 15 a game and aren't necessarily an all-star player or a Hall of Famer who have big moments, those big moments sometimes in history define them as someone who's done, who's been a player that's better than other people. People treat sometimes these moments, let's say Derek Fisher shot as a moment that made Derek Fisher better than someone like Nick Young, you know, or someone who's even better than Derek Fisher, like Kyrie Irving. Sometimes in people's minds, uh, the sports world makes it seem like that moment is bigger than any other thing that's happened. And the problem is that these big moments happen no matter what. And of course, big moments happen. But like McConaughey is saying, what matters is the progression throughout the entire career and big moments will always matter. Uh, but big players and big moments correlate heavily. So keeping that in perspective, like there are a lot of more examples, like the ones McConnell's also put out there, of players that just, man, I mean, one moment can make them seem like this god. I mean, Dwight Clark, what people don't realize is like, sure, they don't, they, people who follow football realize he's not a top tight end to ever play football. But people who don't play football and just know about the catch, think that Dwight Clark's the reason that the Niners won the Super Bowl. Therefore, Dwight Clark's one of the only tight ends that had a catch that won the Super Bowl for a team. Therefore, Dwight Clark is a top 10 tight end of all time. And that connection and that connectivity needs to kind of mature and find a balance. I would say the legend of Dwight Clark, you know, that legendary catch is more important than a lot of guys' whole careers. And, and that's my point is that you can, your, your moment can get elevated and if he's known as one of the top tight ends of all time, well, shoot, then that's, I mean, I don't think he's recognized that, but his moment is, and that's what needs to be recognized. You can't just ignore that, like, you, you gotta you gotta account for the, these guys' moments. I, I don't know, I just think that you look at these guys, and yes, like, their moments are big, and they're supposed to be big. They should be taken big. I want to kind of give one final point before I wrap this up, because the greatest play I have ever seen on the biggest stage came on the opposite side of Russell Wilson. Russell Wilson throws the football and it is caught at the goal line by none other than Malcolm Butler. Patriots win the Super Bowl. Now what happens later? The Patriots 
don't play Malcolm Butler in the Super Bowl and they lose. And why does that happen? Oh, and everybody just starts saying, oh my gosh, you don't have Malcolm Butler in? He's a, he's a great cornerback. You need to play him. How they would have won if they had played Malcolm Butler. Bill Belichick recognized it's not about the moment. Sure, he made that catch. He made that pick. He did that. That is probably the greatest NFL Super Bowl moment I will ever see. I don't know how you can top it. But yes, that matters. Yes, it matters. But in the end, we need to be looking at the full product of their portfolio. Look at Malcolm Butler in the regular season where he was good, but he wasn't the guy that you have to have on the field. And Bill Belichick recognized that. And Bill Belichick said, no, you're not going to play. And I think we can all agree Bill Belichick is one of the smartest minds in football. Well, yes, we can recognize that. But that was that was a mistake to not play him. That was the game where Nick Foles slaughtered them. And I don't, I don't know a lot of the details about it. But Malcolm Butler, I don't think anyone really thinks of him as the top corner in the game. Now, the year after the Super Bowl, he played very well, and he got a big contract. He had, you know, he, but he had played really well. That's why he got the big contract, not because of the moment. Then he kind of fell off after that. But his moment is always going to be legendary. Yes. And, and I think that him as a player is not, like, people don't talk about it the same way. People talk about his moment, yeah, but people recognize that he's not that good anymore. Like, yes. Like, people know uh, yeah, that. I agree. People definitely but know in that, that time. So, like, the final thing, I just want to say, and then I'll wrap it up. This is guaranteed the last point, but my overall idea is that you need to look at the full body of work of an athlete when you're talking about their greatness. Because, obviously, you can have a great moment, but that doesn't make the athlete great just because you have that great moment. Now, a lot of times, great athletes make great, have great moments. LeBron James, Michael Jordan, Tom Brady, they have that. Jerry Rice. They have those great moments. Usain Bolt doesn't even have to be in the sports we're talking about. But a lot of times, it's not a great all-time great player. The Derek Fishers, the Joe Flaccos, the Eli Mannings. So what we have to do is we need to look back at our opinions and make sure that we're not inflating our opinions based on those moments. And with that, I just want to shout out our Twitter, at The Worst Take Net, our Instagram, at The Worst Take Network, our website, theworsttakenetwork.com, and let all of you know that we actually have another podcast that got started up, the 49ers, San Francisco 49ers Worst Take Podcast. It's A link is on our website for that. It's Matt and Parsa doing it. Go check that out. But thank you all for listening, and we'll see all of you again on Friday. Hey.